Yeah, so my name's Oli. Um, I uh, on, am privileged to be on the eldership team um, that leads this church. Uh, I'm not, uh, I don't work for the church. Uh, I'm actually a farmer by trade, <laughs> an olive farmer, uh, amongst other things. Um, yeah, and it's a, it's a real privilege to, to be with you this morning. I have two kids, or a wife and two kids, um, and we have another one on the way in the next week or two. Mm. So, yeah, little baby girl will be here soon, eh? Um, lekker. So, we've been looking at this series called DNA, and the big question there is, why, why do you join a church? Why do you join a church? And so, if you're visiting or you're new, new here this morning, um, first of all, a huge welcome. Thank you for, for joining us, and um, yeah, you guys get to see you. Um, and uh, yeah, we basic, what we're basically trying to lay out uh, what we believe as a church community uh, in this series called DNA, and how that affects what we do as a church, and what it looks like on a heart level and practically to partner with, with this particular faith community. And so the kind of tagline that we've hooked this series on is that being meaningfully Part of a committed community is God's idea of what is good for us. There it is. Thank you, Dev. Being meaningfully part of a committed community is God's idea of what is good for us. And so who remembers Bates's preach from last week? Some of you. <laughs> That's so encouraging when you're a preacher. You're like, two people remembered what you said. <laughs> we can go home now. Uh, so Bates actually did such a great job last week um, of explaining from Scripture why we believe in community and showing why putting we before me is something that nothing in our Western individualism idolizing culture prepares us for. And then illustrating how we, how we approach community and some of the ways that we practically do life together as God's family. And so, off the back of that word, if you've been battling to feel connected into community, I hope and I trust that you've started taking some steps and committed in your heart to join a life group, to get to prayer meetings, to be here on Sundays. And I really just want to encourage you in that, not just for your own sake. Yes, community is for your good, but have you considered that God has put you here to be a blessing to others? That you don't join a life group primarily to get something, but actually to give something. Jesus is quoted in the book of Acts by Paul as having taught his followers that it is more blessed to give than to receive. And so I'd love you to just consider that as you think about how you get involved in community, that it's not primarily about what you can get out, but about what God has put in you that he wants you to bring. And so off the back of that, what I want to speak about this morning is um, generous together or living generously. And before we go any further, I just need to pray. <laughs> Father, we... Um, we just come to you this morning, God, and I'm so aware that with this topic, there is so much noise, there is so much opposition in our hearts, in our culture, that would seek to shut down anything that you want to say to us, Lord, through your word. And so, Father, this morning, I want to ask for the empowering grace of the Holy Spirit, Lord, that you would come and help me to speak clearly, Lord, to not bring confusion, to not... Um, yeah, not misrepresent anything, God, to bring the truth in a clear and a plain way, Father. And I want to pray for those who sit here this morning listening, God, that you would open our hearts, open my heart and open our hearts 
to what you want to say to us through your eternal and living word, God, which has been tried and tested and proven. And so, Father, we commit this time to you, Lord. We, we bring our hearts before you. We bring our minds under discipline, and we ask that you would speak, Lord, in Jesus' name. Okay. So, living generously or generous together. You'll often hear us say this from the front and when we speak about giving, that this is a generous church. And you guys are. You are. Many of you are incredibly generous. But if you're looking in, or if you are still fairly new to church, you may be wondering why it matters. Or what does it mean to live generously? Does it mean that the church wants your money? <laughs> That's the obvious question, and I want to say emphatically, no, we don't want your money for self-enrichment. One of the reasons we teach so little on money and giving is that we live in a society and a culture that is highly skeptical and cynical around this, where people are justifiably, in a lot of cases, nervous when a preacher starts talking about money. My own family context is one where there is a huge amount of cynicism around, around this, around the abuses that have happened in churches, and sadly in our day, Unhappy examples abound of people using the church to enrich themselves. But as Pete Howard Brown used to say, the answer to abuse is not non-use. It's correct use. And so it's always a sobering reminder when what think, one thinks of what Jesus on his return is going to say to those who used his bride, his wife, to enrich themselves at the expense of her honor and in derision of his glorious name. But if we are going to be faithful to Scripture, we need to teach about this. In fact, we probably should be speaking a lot more about it. Not because we want something from you, but because we want something for you. Now, I need to explain what I mean by that, and we're going to get into that just now. But first off, I just want to provide you with a brief outline of where we're going this morning. And I want you to leave here with some answers around this issue. The first thing is, why do we believe that God has called us to live generous lives? And secondly, what does that look like in the context of this community? How are we generous? Whom do we express generosity towards? And what does that look like practically? And so to get some handles on this, a helpful lens to summarize various activities within the, the life of the church is to look at the above in terms of three areas. Time, treasure, and together. Time, treasure, together. And so for the second part of this message, we're going to unpack what it looks like for us practically to live generously as this community through those lenses. But before we go any further, I want to acknowledge that the Scriptures are difficult for us in this area. We are bent in a particular direction by our culture, by our upbringing, even by a lot of teaching within the church, which makes it really hard to hear and consider what Scripture is actually saying on the matter. We need to acknowledge that. And then we need to come to the Word of God and say, Father, what are you really saying about this issue? The author Randy Alcorn uses this powerful illustration in his book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity. Imagine for a moment as you sit there, that you are a financial advisor. And today you have two appointments. The first one with an elderly woman 
and then with a, with a middle-aged man. The elderly woman's story is this. Her husband died six years ago, and she says to you, I'm down to my last 20 rand. I have no more money. The cupboards are bare. This 20 rand is all that I have to live on. But I feel as if God wants me to put it in the offering. What do you think, Mr. Financial Advisor? And what would you tell her? I want you to just take a moment and just think. What would your advice be to this, this widow, this poor widow? Your next appointment is with a successful, hard-working, middle-aged farmer whose crop production has been excellent. He tells you, I'm planning to tear down my old barns to build bigger ones so I can store up more crops and goods and have plenty saved up for the future. Then I can take it easy, retire early, and maybe do some traveling and golfing. What do you think? What's your instinctive answer as their financial advisor? Maybe it would be something like, sounds good to me. You've worked hard. The Lord has clearly blessed you with good crops. You know, it's, it's your business, your crops and money. If you can save enough to take care of yourself for the rest of your life, by all means, go for it. Maybe one day I'll be in a position to do the same. And now doesn't that seem like reasonable advice? But what would God say? And the, the good thing is we don't need to speculate here because Scripture actually tells us exactly what he says. In the Gospels, in Mark 12, we meet a poor widow who put two tiny copper coins in the temple offering box. And this was the only money she had. And Jesus, observing this, called his disciples and said, Hey guys, come here, come here, I want to teach you something. Did he question the woman's wisdom? Did he say she should have been more sensible than to surrender her only remaining resources? No. He gave her an unqualified commendation. Mark 12, 43-44, he says, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything. All she had to live on. Jesus regarded the woman as wise. He set her up as a model for his disciples to follow. He enshrined her example in the word of God so that future generations might emulate her faith and sacrificial generosity. And yet, if she had come to us for advice, had come to me for advice, we might have tried to talk her out of doing the very thing that Jesus commended her for. That's so hectic. <laughs> and then in Luke 12, we meet a rich man. And we're not told that he gained his wealth dishonestly or that he wasn't a religious guy or a good guy. He probably attended synagogue weekly, visited the temple three times a year, tithed and prayed as most Jews did. He worked hard and diligently to build his business. And now, like any good businessman, he wanted to expand by building bigger barns. His purpose was to accumulate enough wealth to retire early and have a good time. The quintessential American dream. But what, what did God say to this man? Luke 12 verse 20 he says, You fool! This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? 
And then Jesus adds, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. By our standards, both in and outside the church, the widow's actions seem unwise and the rich man seem wise, right? But God, who knows the hearts of both and sees from the vantage point of eternity, regards the poor woman as eternally wise and the rich man as eternally foolish. So we see that our beliefs about money are not only radically different from God's, but diametrically opposed to them. We find it very difficult to see clearly in this area because in addition to the natural, selfish bent of our hearts, we've been raised in a culture that elevates consumerism to virtually the highest value. I just want to read a quote by a guy called Richard Eckersley, who's a, an Australian scholar. And he observes that consumerism constantly seeks ways to colonize our consciousness. And as consumerism spreads, the goal of marketing becomes not only to make us dissatisfied with what we have, but also with who we are. We focus on the blind accumulation of more, on the assumption that this will somehow make us happier. Consumerism both fosters and exploits the restless, insatiable expectation that there has to be more to life. I thought that was quite profound. And so what do we do? What is our first instinct when it comes uh, to the scriptures that talk about money and possessions? And if you're anything like me, <laughs> your first instinct is avoidance, right? I would rather just not go there. I'd rather just not read those scriptures that talk about denying yourself, about generosity and selling our stuff and giving to the poor, about God's ownership of all things, because they make me so darn uncomfortable. They cut into my cherished view of the good life. But if we are going to follow Jesus, we need to follow him here too. We need to let his words pierce us because deep down we know as Christ followers that we can't be content when we haven't completely opened ourselves to what he has for us. Because if we've really experienced the goodness and grace of God and been glad recipients of that grace, then we want to know more of him. We don't want to miss out on the more that he has for us. And there are few areas, guys, where we can learn more about faith, trust, commitment, and God's provision than this area of finances. So let's start with this. Why do we believe that God has called us to live generous lives? And the fact of the matter is that Jesus taught about generosity like a lot. So the Bible speaks about prayer something like 500 times, I think. It speaks about faith somewhere around 500 times. Now, I've got two little boys. If I have the persistence and energy to tell my two boys something 500 times without weariness, then you've got to believe that it's something important. I'm still working on please and thank you, and it's probably been about 5,000 times, but it's important. But who can guess how many times money and possessions are mentioned in the Scriptures? Anyone? Throw out a number. Be bold. <laughs> More than 2,000 times. Eclipsing faith, eclipsing prayer, 
So clearly there is something here that God thinks is really, really important for us to get. In fact, over a quarter of Jesus' teaching was about money. Why is that? Was Jesus obsessed with money? Was he trying to use religion to get rich? To upgrade his chariot? To buy or build himself a fitting palace in the Jerusalem CBD? We all know that's an absurd thought because the historical record tells us that Jesus never owned a chariot or a palace or even a house for that matter. The Son of Man, he said, has nowhere to lay down his head and rest. When he rode into Jerusalem in his final days, it was on a borrowed donkey. All he died with was the clothes on his back, and even those were stripped from him as the Roman soldiers gambled for his cloak. And so this Palestinian manual laborer who claimed to be the Son of God and then provided incredible evidences of it, such as healings, miracles, and then rising from the dead, yo, died homeless and penniless and naked. So it's clear that Jesus was not talking about money in order to manipulate people into giving him theirs. So why then was he so strong on this issue? So what we're going to do next is we're just going to briefly read through those 2,000 scriptures together. Are you ready? Can you get your Bibles out? Jokes, jokes. But please, get your Bibles out if you have them here. We only have till 11, so we won't do that. We're just going to focus in on one key scripture from the Gospels where Jesus presents something of the core of his teaching around this. I want to pick up on the central theme that he brings out in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 to 24. Matthew 6, 19 to 24. You all there? Great. Okay, so it starts. Verse 19. Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. <clears throat> but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. Next one. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And so, to lighten the mood a little here, because it's feeling a little heavy, <laughs> uh, I want to ask you a question. And whoever can give me the first answer is going to get some gold coins, chocolate gold coins, okay? So the question is this. What is the key word here that Jesus keeps using in reference to this issue of money and possessions? Who said it? Who said it? Treasure. Who said it? Who? Siggy. Oh, well, there's, there's a coin for you. Two coins for you. Sorry. Who else? There you go. Well done, bro. There you go. Happy winners. Well done, guys. Treasure. That's right. It's treasure. The thing that most captivates our vision. That which in our heart of hearts we consider to be of ultimate value. Now, if I have to ask you, what is your greatest treasure, what would your knee-jerk answer be? 
If this was kids' church, I think we, it actually happened over here, someone would be throwing up their hand and yelling, Jesus! Because that's the answer to every question, right? But what does my bank statement and your bank statement say about that? What does my diary and your diary say about what we really value and treasure? What does our daydreaming, when we have a few moments to ourselves, those of us with small children don't know what this is like anymore, but when you have a few moments to yourselves to dream, where does your mind go? Because the fact is that whatever our time, money, and attention flow towards reveals a great deal about what our treasure is, about where we place our ultimate value. And I want you to note that Jesus in the Matthew 6 scripture says that there is something we should not do, right? What is that? He says, do not lay up treasures for yourselves on earth. And so on the surface, it seems like God is against us. He doesn't want us to enjoy life. He doesn't want us to be happy. He's like, do not store up treasures for yourselves on earth. And it's like, God, why? Don't you want me to enjoy life? Don't you want me to be happy? But that's not the whole picture. It's a distortion. Because Jesus also tells us what we should do. And in fact, he emphatically encourages us to lay up treasures for, your, for ourselves. It's right there in verse 20. So all the while we're thinking, oh, Jesus doesn't want me to lay up treasures. No! Jesus wants you to lay up treasures for yourselves. So the issue is not the laying up of treasures. The issue, according to Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, is where do we lay up those treasures? So consider carefully the thread of Jesus' argument. He knows the human heart. He knows our desires. He's the one who gave them to us in the first place. He acknowledges our innate need for security, for something solid and stable to found our lives on. And he's not denying that in any way, shape, or form. Friends, Jesus is not against you. He's not opposed to your joy, satisfaction, and happiness. In reality, the complete opposite is true. He is uncompromisingly and passionately for you for your joy, satisfaction, and happiness. At its heart, the issue with money and possessions is simply this. Do we trust and believe that the one who created the universe and created us and our hearts knows and will faithfully provide us with that which will really satisfy us in the long run? Let me say that again. Do we trust and believe that the one who created the universe and us knows and will faithfully provide us with what will really satisfy us in the long run. He does, of course, He does. And that's why He urges us not to put our trust in things that have no ultimate or lasting worth, but rather in that which can and will sustain us for the long haul. That's why He explains His reasoning. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Why? Because they won't last. Because eventually that shiny new car is going to end up on, in a, as a rusting heap in a scrapyard somewhere. Eventually, years down the line, that beautiful home that you've dreamed about is going to end up as a derelict pile of ruins or be raised to the ground by a new owner or developer. Those sweet new threads that you just had to have will wear out or go out of fashion or be relegated to the back of your cupboard. Stock markets rise and fall. Currencies crash. There is no true security to be had in created things. 
Jesus values our hearts too much to let us go on foolishly trusting in things that have no lasting basis. He refuses to let us set ourselves up for disappointment. He won't let us find our security and worth and hope in things that can never sustain them. He knows that God is a far superior source, an infinitely more enduring foundation for our security, and a richer reward than any payday, earthly payday could ever be. It would be hard for me not to quote C.S. Lewis in this preach. Listen to this. The faint, far-off results of those energies which God's creative rapture implanted in matter when he made the worlds are what we now call physical pleasures. And even thus filtered, they are too much for our present management. What would it be to taste at the fountainhead, that stream of which even these lower reaches prove so intoxicating? Yet that, I believe, is what lies before us. The whole man is to drink joy from the fountain of joy. It reminds me of Psalm 16, where he talks about God being the source of joy, and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Lewis goes on to say that the New Testament has a lot to say about self-denial, but not about self-denial as an end in itself. We are told to deny ourselves and to take up our cross in order to follow Christ. And nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find, if we do so, contains an appeal to desire. If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that it's a bad thing to desire one's own good and earnestly hope for enjoyment, it is because it has crept in from the teaching of Immanuel Kant and the ancient Stoics. Certainly it has no part in the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy has been offered to us. We are far too easily pleased, like an ignorant child who goes on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. That's one of my favorite quotes of his. It's so potent. (laughs) God is for us. God is for our joy. And that's why he speaks these hard words to us, because we are so inclined to find it in the wrong places. So what does generosity look like for us? Once we get the foundation right, once we understand that all God wants from us is a heart that trusts Him as our source and provider, this has massive implications for how we live out our lives, what we do with our resources, individually and as a community. Because in reality, the forward momentum of this church is largely a function of the collective sacrificial contributions of many, as we saw in the feedback this morning. And so, some helpful categories, as I said earlier, to look at generosity are time, treasure, and together. Now, Bates covered the together part last week beautifully, looking at community, looking at the value of community and how we sow ourselves into community. But I briefly want to look at how we invest our time and treasure in the community. So firstly, time. 
Time is our most valuable resource, right? It's the one thing that which, once it is used up, can never be replaced. And Scripture commands us who follow Christ to make the best use of the time that He has given us. And again, here the principle applies. We, either spend, we can either spend our time on ourselves, where, we, where whatever we put in gives little more than momentary relief or pleasure, or we can invest it into an eternal kingdom, where we, whatever we put in will surely bear fruit for eternity. So the question is, are we going to spend the majority of our time on enhancing ourselves and our lives in the here and now? Or are we going to invest it in the King and His kingdom, where He is able to take whatever we give Him and entrust to Him and make it far more fruitful, lasting, glorious, and beautiful than we could ever And so if I think of ways that we can wisely invest our time in the context of this community, I think of the many, many people here who week in and week out generously serve according to their gifts and abilities in the life of the church. I think of those who get here early every Sunday to help on setup teams, sound team, projection, music teams, and make sure that this place is ready to welcome people and create an atmosphere where God can be worshipped and His people encouraged. I think of Atilia. Is Atilia here this morning? Often she works a night shift at the hospice. She's a nurse. And then she'll be here in the morning, you know, not having slept. But she's here. She'll be there serving on setup. It's just beautiful examples of people investing their time into this community. I think of our life group leaders opening their homes every week to love people and make them feel part of God's family and disciple them to, into productive followers of Christ. I think of our kids' church and youth volunteers who energetically and enthusiastically pour out their lives in order to expose the next generation to the gospel and to help us flailing, twitching, jerking parents to (laughs) equip our kids to follow the king in a world that's increasingly hostile to to faith. I think of Serve Steli's serve events where so many of you have got stuck in serving the poor and marginalized in our community. Or spend time praying for our partner organizations. Or sowing your expertise and skills to make a difference there. Not getting paid for it. Not getting any recognition from people for it. But doing it as joyful worship to Jesus and in gratitude for His goodness to us. I think of you young guys, red frogs, guys and girls. Giving up your nights and your weekends to serve, <laughs> to serve wasted party goers and help them in their most vulnerable state. People who are prone to doing incredibly silly and dangerous things in order to show them the love of Jesus. And there are so many other ways that we can give in this area of our time. All of us can give something. There's marriage events. There's Alpha. There's student ministry. All of these things bring, breathe momentum into the life of One Hope community. And you guys have proven an incredibly generous people. And I can say that with conviction. The next thing I want to look at is treasure. And so we've, we've spoken a lot about this this morning. What we do with our money, possessions, and resources is a solid indicator of what we treasure and trust in. And now everyone here, I'm sure, works hard for their money. And your income is your treasure that you must steward before God. And as people give a portion of their treasure to one hope, we endeavor, as Johannes brought this morning, to be good stewards of that money. 
And so hopefully the feedback this morning has given you confidence that as an eldership, we're seeking to steward the money that you give to One Hope in a manner that is missional, God-honoring, and transparent. But the reality is that we wouldn't have any money to steward if it wasn't for you guys, faithfully and generously giving to the work. Doing the stuff that we do costs money. Meeting on a Sunday costs money. We need to pay rent. We need to put toilet paper in the bathrooms. We need to buy the coffee (laughs) that we drink. Reaching people with the gospel costs money. Running an alpha course is something that we delight to do, but it's expensive to host people and to provide them with a meal and just so that they can be exposed to the, the news of Jesus. And so if you are looking to partner with One Hope, then we ask you to partner with us in this area also by being faithful and generous and contributing some of your treasure to One Hope. And I don't have time to go into a lot of detail on the distinctions between tithing and giving. But I do want to say that our view is that tithing, which was commanded in the Old Testament, is not the ultimate bar to attain to, but it actually should be viewed as the training wheels of giving. Tithing, which means a tenth, is an ongoing reminder that we are not self-sufficient, that we are not our own source, that ultimately all we have comes from God, and He is the true owner of all our stuff. But a helpful question around this to consider is this. Is the law, or was the law, more effective at creating generous hearts in us than grace? Surely, those of us who are no longer under the law, no longer under compulsion to rules and regulations, who have been liberated, who have tasted the freedom of a relationship with Christ and believed in His promises to sustain us, not only for this life, but for eternity, surely we should be filled with greater thankfulness that flows out into greater generosity. And so, in concluding, I want to state that our motive for giving is God's gift to us in Jesus. Let's have a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse, uh, very quickly. 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 1. Paul, writing to the Corinthian church, which was a a motley crew of uh, interesting people, he says this, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. And that's a crucial principle when it comes to this thing of giving. We don't want you to give yourselves to the church. We want you to give yourselves first to the Lord and in obedience to Him. Steward your treasure as he would lead you. Then jumping down to verse 8, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And so, let's end by considering Jesus. 
Many of us know what it is to become a bit less rich for people by giving away something of our resources. But few of us have yet to become poor for anyone. We may give of our abundance. We may even remove a layer of our pleasures or savings. But it's an altogether different matter. As one author says, Ali, you sent this to me. Was it Beth Moore? Kelly Minter. Ali sent me this beautiful quote. It's another thing entirely to get down to the subterranean floor of all I have and give it to someone else that they might become rich. This is the way of Jesus. He was rich in that he shared in the privileges of equality with God, the fullness of unbroken fellowship with the Father and the Holy Spirit. He became poor by taking on our flesh, confining himself to the limitations and suffering of this world, ultimately to death on a cross. And he did it to make us rich. Not rich in material stuff, because this can actually make us poor in matters of the Spirit but rich in peace that doesn't cut and run in the face of uncertainty, rich in contentment that knows how to ride both the waves of abundance and slim pickings, rich in intimacy with him that oddly enough grows deeper and more precious in suffering soil, rich in joy whether by the gifts of material blessings that bring us a measure of happiness or the joy that comes with giving our lives away, rich in life, abundant, and eternal. And so I'd like us to reflect on the Savior, on the one who gives us motivation and reason for generosity. Let's reflect on his generosity to us. The one who gave us life and breath and everything is the one who's represented in the symbols this morning of the juice and the bread. Jesus, his body was broken. As we heard, he came down into this world. He took on a human body. He was limited in the ways that we are, he suffered unbelievable deprivation and pain, dying on a cross so that he could make us rich, so that he could connect us to the God who is the source of life. And so can I invite you to come up, uh, grab some juice, uh, and the band is going to come up some juice and some bread, and then return to your seats. And let's uh, just gather in small groups uh, and pray together, just giving thanks to God. And I just want to say, if you're visiting here this morning, if you're a Christ follower, this is a no-pressure moment. You can just relax. You can check Facebook. You can um, just, just check out. Um, because we actually don't want to encourage you to do this if it's not meaningful for you. This is something hugely um, important and meaningful in the Christian faith. And it's only for those who would profess faith in Christ. Um, so, yeah, can I invite you to come up and then return to your groups uh, little groups of two and three and, and pray prayers of thanksgiving together.